Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, September 17th, 2015. Tonight we have another interesting show because we have my good friends for many years now, Dan Edstrom, Jim Macklin, and now Charles Marshall, who have all been involved in the discovery or confirmation of the existence of trusts which some of you might remember the banks were all denying ever existed. And they've been working on the truth and the fabrication of mortgage documents, backdated assignments, undated endorsements, servicer advances, and the real reason the banks push foreclosure when it is obvious that the creditor would be better off with a modification or workout. Jim, Dan, and Charles join us tonight, and we're lucky to have them on this show. And they provide litigation support to attorneys nationwide. We'll get into that information later. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you call 954-495-9867 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. On the West Coast, you can dial 520-405-1688. And for our friends at the foreclosure mills who are just listening in, no contribution is required. Just recognize the error of your ways, and we'll be happy with that. Living Lies. Nearly 11 million visits is the number one place on the Internet to get information, forms, facts, and opinions from a variety of sources on foreclosure defense, consumer loans, and student loans. And lately, based upon some requests I've received, we're now looking into reverse mortgages, which should be interesting unto itself. Our mission is to share as much information as we can to help beleaguered homeowners and other consumers who may not be aware of the effect the housing crisis has had, even if they didn't own a home. And we are accomplishing our mission here as more and more people and more and more judges are seeing the facts as they really are and not as they appear on the paperwork that is being used by banks, trustees, and servicers who are attempting to foreclose and essentially steal homes and steal the proceeds. And for the judges that don't get it, the U.S. Supreme Court explained something to them in January 
the court, the trial judge, may not interpret a statute that is clear on its face. They can't rewrite the statute. And now we have <clears throat> a number of test cases regarding rescissions, including those sent within the three-year period from when the documents were signed and those that are older, sometimes much older. My answer has been that the statute and the Supreme Court are unanimous. The statute, as Justice Scalia said in Jesenowski versus Countrywide, makes no distinctions between disputed and undisputed rescissions. The statute says that the procedures set forth in the statute apply to all rescissions. As a result, and I'm just, this isn't my opinion, I'm simply giving you the information of what they said in the, in the case and what the statute says and what the regulations say. This is not a matter of interpretation. I'm simply giving you information. But I'm getting a huge number of calls, I can't take all of them, from attorneys all over the country who are challenged by the simplicity of TILA rescission. The bottom line, <clears throat> as I explained to them in countless calls, is that a wrongful rescission is still effective by operation of law. When it is sent, it is effective by operation of law. If the creditor establishes standing, and if they, if they raise the reasons about why it's wrong, they will probably win if they file the challenge within the 20-day window for compliance with the TILA statute. And that is why Justice Scalia inserted the language in the Supreme Court decision that was unanimous, that the statute does not make any distinction between disputed and undisputed rescissions. Rescission is effective by operation of law when mailed, even if it could possibly be attacked by a party withstanding on the basis of when consummation occurred, or some other ground that would make the rescission subject to being vacated. What people are not quite grasping, because it is just too simple, is that rescission is effective when mailed, by operation of law. So at that moment, the loan contract is canceled, the note and mortgage are void, and the lender, whoever that is, must pay all the money back that they ever received and pay also any money that was ever paid out as compensation for the origination of the loan. The rescission is the equivalent of a court order. A court order gets its effect and its authority by operation of law. What law? It's a statute that says if the judge says it, that's the way it is. That's what by operation of law means. That's what effective by operation of law means. The Supreme Court put the reins on judges who don't like rescission. In their unanimous decision in January, they said there's nothing ambiguous about the Teela rescission statute and therefore no judge anywhere can interpret it to mean something different or rewrite it. The only choice the judge has is to follow the law, not make new law. Just like the hated minimum mandatory sentences, many judges have said in open court they would order a lesser sentence, but that the minimum mandatory sentence, by operation of law, passed by the legislature, must be applied. So the defendant goes off for 10 years when he could have been sentenced for six months. In the case of rescission, the legislature is Congress. Just because the judge doesn't like it doesn't mean they don't need to follow the law. 
I'm sure they would agree if we were talking about one of their own court orders, which are only effective also by operation of law, by a state statute or a federal statute that says if they say it, that's what it is. A court order and a notice of rescission both carry the full weight of the law, whether they are right or wrong. Both can be vacated if the party actually injured by the ruling or rescission takes steps in court to vacate the order or vacate the rescission, and if they do so within the prescribed time limits. So now that I have that out of my system, back to our esteemed guests. Dan Edstrom has been fighting with the banks on behalf of himself and hundreds of people, and he has assisted me in hundreds of cases, um, uh, sometimes taking a load off of me that was impossible for me to uh, uh, absorb. An engineer by trade and training, he applies step-by-step -step analysis to try and make sense out of the mortgage mess. He and I together and separately figured out that there is a farce behind the force of the banks. And he has helped countless people from the Living Lies site and his own site and just people who got to know his name. Jim Macklin, with a varied career, is one of the most articulate and clever analysts in the market. He is a prize. He also has been fighting the banks on his own behalf and on behalf of large numbers of people. And they have teamed up with Charles Marshall, a really good lawyer in Northern California. Charles is thoughtful, analytical, and has a good sense of what will get traction in court. Guys, thanks for being with me here tonight. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Neil. So, let me ask Dan first. What do you think has changed in the mortgage foreclosure business over the last year? I think over the last year, it's gotten really targeted down to specific, specific issues that need to be addressed in the complaint and in response to their motions to dismiss, whereas in the past, um, there was just so much being thrown out and, you know, a whole narrative of what, you know, what we believe happened and the problems with it when it turns out that what you said in the beginning was true and that there is no trust. I found that uh, uh, the the information that the the trust only existed on paper, if that, and never operated and never had a bank account that was that was an eye opener for me uh because one of the things that occurred to me was everybody said you can't prosecute for securities fraud because the certificates issued by the remic trusts are excluded from uh, securities regulation because they're mortgage-backed and they're private contracts. But the truth is those certificates were backed by nothing and therefore they do fall within securities regulation and there could be prosecutions if the statute of limitations has not run out. But it looks like nobody in law enforcement wants to do that, at least not yet. Any comment on that from you, Dan? Well, uh, the issue that I'm seeing is they're not producing anything in discovery. 
including the actual certificates and who purchased them, if anyone. And so you have the trustee who's attempting to act on behalf of the trust, but it's actually not even them. It's the servicer coming in and basically making all the statements and responding to everything. And so in fact, is the only one really interested in the outcome because they use it as an excuse to force the sale of the property. They grab the house and then they attack the proceeds with their claim for recovery of servicer advances which were paid for out of the reserve fund that consists entirely of the investor's own money. So what we have is a Ponzi scheme, but because it was disclosed in the prospectus, people are saying that's not illegal. I'm not so sure. Jim, how are these issues being addressed in your upcoming seminar on October 17th? And by the way, give people the information on that. Uh, well, thank you, Neil. The uh, the seminar is an MCLE which is a continuing legal education credit available to all attorneys that attend. We are doing this seminar in Emeryville, California, which is directly at the base of the uh, Bay Bridge uh, between Oakland and San Francisco. Uh, you have been there yourself before. In fact, uh, as of right now, uh, Neil Garfield is slated to attend via Skype for a full hour on uh a variety of, of different um, subject matter. Uh, we do expect the event to sell out. So uh, if people are uh, looking to come to the event or have an attorney that wants to come, we strongly recommend that you get on the Garfield site uh, or Dan will give us uh, his website at the DT System site. Get signed up. Uh, get in quick because these things do fill up very fast. We limit the seating to about 40 or 50 people in this one. Uh, so please make sure that you sign up fast if you're coming. And we are going to be discussing um, a volume of some of the newer stuff that we are seeing actual results on in court, and that is, is really stemming from how we're approaching this on a, on a contract level. And from a contract versus title level, uh, we're getting offers of settlement that are coming out before we even get to discovery. Um, and, and we'll get into a lot of detail about that in the seminar, but uh, we have a whole new line of cases that have been coming in for the last five to nine months, and uh, they've got teeth, and the, the oppositions are responding very quickly. Uh, the courts are recognizing the differentiation between an attorney who walks into the room and slaps up 12 different causes of action for everything from wrongful foreclosure to quiet title to you name it, where we've really pared this down to a, a, a very surgical strike as opposed to the shotgun blast. Well, you guys are really the ones to do that, and it will be my pleasure to appear by Skype at, at, at your seminar, assuming we can master the technology, which I assume Dan can do. Um, <laughs> He's always been able to in the past. Um, and just to piggyback on what you were saying, I also have had a number of cases where in the last, I'd say, like you say, nine months, 
Well, we've either won outright or we've had settlements, which I can't talk about any uh, any details, but I can say that after years of intense ridicule of our position and how stupid we were and how we were trying to get a free house and we're no good and we're ugly too, suddenly some fairly large six-figure offers were made and negotiated in confidential settlements under seal and a couple of seven-figure ones. And that's all I can say about the subject. But I just wanted to piggyback on what you were saying, that things are changing. Um, Charles, what do you think are the greatest challenges ahead of us as we try to reveal the farce to undercut the sheer force of the largest banks in history? Well, I think the challenges are going to continue to to revolve around the way that uh, the old standing arguments that have been used by the servicers repeatedly over the years, that those arguments have still not been discarded by the courts. I mean, we are making progress, and we're getting judges, kind of one judge at a time. I mean, I have a practice all over California, literally in every county, all the uh, appellate districts, and then in all four federal court districts in California, and we are getting judges one at a time to see that, you know, the old standing arguments based on Jenkins are really misconceived and misapplied. And now we have the Ivanova appeal, you know, that Kamala Harris weighed in on as a with a friend of the court brief on behalf of the appellant borrower. And regardless of what happens in that case, that case highlights dramatically not just what's at stake between the two sides, but how the old Jenkins argument about um, the borrowers not having standing, particularly related to a securitized trust situation, how that's a misapplication of the law. And judges are starting to increasingly see that that's the case. It is helping with settlement value. As Jim was mentioning Jim and I coordinate a large number of cases, and we're getting a lot of settlement offers early that we wouldn't have seen, let's say, one year ago. We certainly wouldn't have seen them as early and in the uh, substantial amounts that are being offered on the other side. So I think, in short, this is a good time from a borrower's point of view, and you know, also to to mention just briefly the seminar coming up in October, yes, we're looking for attorneys to coordinate with because it's so critical to have attorneys bring these cases uh, with a large, you know, knowledge found behind them to be able to move these cases forward. But it's also critical um, that these these seminars are, are a venue for borrowers to really up their own knowledge base as well. So those seminars serve a dual purpose, and we encourage all borrowers and all attorneys who are interested in the foreclosure arena to attend. Uh, But the short of it is, you know, as time moves forward, we are making more traction, and I think that's going to continue. 
Well, I would encourage lawyers, homeowners, interested people to attend the seminar. Um, there's a lot more to this than meets the eye, and the cultural bias that I think Charles was alluding to in the court system is not because they hate borrowers. It's because a lot of what we've been saying for eight years is counterintuitive. It just doesn't make sense in the framework of a normal bank-borrower relationship. When you think of how often a case actually goes to foreclosure versus being worked out with some modification, that has been turned on its head. And you have to ask why. And the, the why of it is why you need to go to a seminar like this because I can't tell you in three minutes what the reason is. I can summarize it this way that the only drivers are the servicers and the only people who stand to benefit from the foreclosure are the servicers and the people they're saying that are the creditors don't exist and the people who are the real creditors they're blocking, stonewalling the borrower from getting in touch with. And if, as I've said on my blog many times, if we could get all the players at the table, we could work out a settlement that would be far more beneficial for both the investors whose dollars were not put into the trust and who don't have the tax protection that they think they do and who don't have the value that they think they do and that would protect homeowners so that they could keep their home and give them an opportunity to increase household wealth. And I don't know how the argument ever came about, but the bank's myth is being, it was accepted completely, and it's still many times accepted, that if somehow or other you were to give relief to the homeowner, the borrower, then the world would collapse. And my answer is, in what universe would an increase in household wealth and income not produce a more vibrant economy? The bank's PR and their ownership of members of Congress and state legislatures legislators is getting in the way of the facts and that's exactly what they want and so that's why I am promoting this particular seminar and there's another one in uh, South Cal uh, Southern California that uh, I'm going to get a little bit more information on which probably uh, uh, may be of some value to people. But this one, I know the people. This one, I know what, they, what their material is. This one, I know what they're saying. And this one, I know, is from people who have been 
successful not over months but over almost a decade now. So I want I I do want to encourage people to do that. What is the best contact information for you guys in connection with getting your services or attending a seminar or whatever? Any of you? Uh, Dan, why don't you take Yeah, Jim, Dan, Jim and Dan will have that. Yeah, Dan, go ahead and give the seminar data, and then we'll give uh, contact numbers. Yeah, the seminar data is on Neil's website. It's too long to, uh, to iterate here. Um, the contact information is 530-888-9600. Extension 101. Okay, give that again. 530-888-9600, extension 101. Okay, and is that a number that will also get to you so that people can hire you guys if they want to? That number yes. comes directly into my office. This is Jim. Okay. All right. Well, then um, th that's exactly what I, I, I think people should do. And um, the... Other thing that I wanted to raise here, which I know uh, is just in its embryonic stage, is that Eric Holder, the former Attorney General of the United States, on his departure said a funny thing. He said, after not prosecuting the banks, which obviously was some deal that was made, I, we know that a deal was made with the Bush administration and the banks. It's obvious that that deal was extended by the Obama administration. And Holder said as he was leaving, he says, he said, don't sue the banks, sue the individuals who run the banks. And so I'm encouraging people to take a look at that. It has been done before, but it was basically treated as conspiratorial nonsense, you know, conspiracy theories. But Eric Holder does have ties to Wall Street, and he wouldn't have said that unless he had a reason to do so. It's just like when Justice Scalia said the um, statute, the Teeler rescission statute, makes no distinction between disputed and undisputed rescissions. He didn't have to say that because this was an undisputed rescission in the sense that it fell within all the definitions of the Teeler statute, the three years and everything else, in Jesenowski versus Countrywide. The only dispute was whether or not you had to sue in order to have a rescission, and the answer was no, that's not what the statute says. And did you have to tender money? And the answer was no, that's not what the statute says. But he went further to say that there was no distinction between disputed and undisputed rescissions. Well, Eric Holder has gratuitously suggested out of nowhere when he was on his way out of office uh, 
that we take a look at lawsuits against the individuals who are actually behind all this. And for reasons that I can't make clear, I believe that the re the main reason for that is that the parties who run those banks are the ones who have the actual control of the more than $3 trillion that's parked off and off balance sheet of these banks. And what they're doing is they're feeding in just a little bit of the money each year that creates the appearance of higher and higher earnings, thus increasing the stock value of each of the banks. But I invite people to comment on my blog about the idea of suing the individuals. That's it for tonight. See you next Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.